2 Kings 23, starting in verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padeah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Chapter 24. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brooks of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Skipping over to Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. It's an exciting day for me because uh, I was sharing this with Lori and Daryl before I started a new notebook today for my notes. And I felt like I had to share with them because when I shared with my wife, she made fun of me. So I felt like I needed, needed that. But. So this morning, I have the pleasure of not only kicking off a new series, but it happens to be one of my favorite books. Um, yeah, Faithfulness and Exile, in case you had, <clears throat> in case you'd guessed from our Yobel reading, we are starting the book of Daniel. Uh, I love this book. It's, um, it's a lot of fun to go through. It's a lot of fun to study. There's so many parts to it um, that are um, amazing and unique. Uh, it starts out straightforward, and then, um, you know, it's recording the narrative and, and the story and... Um, then it kind of gets a little bit more complex, and then it gets weird. And then, you know, as a consequence, most people haven't read the last third. It starts getting weird, and it's like, let's jump over to the Psalms. Um, but uh, Daniel as a book, is, it's, it's really a, a neat, um, that's the best word I can think of, it's a neat 
um, recording of God's faithfulness during a really difficult time. So go ahead and turn to Daniel, um, if you have your Bibles. Or boop over, if you're using your electronic device of choice. Daniel chapter 1. Now before we do that, let's give a little bit of context. This most likely was written by Daniel. That traditionally is what people have held to, and there's really no reason to think that he didn't. He had every opportunity to, and uh, definitely had the means and, and, uh, and all those things. And most of the book is written from the perspective of somebody who's experiencing it. So it makes sense that he, was, he would be the writer. Um, this book is actually written in two different languages, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, sort of unique in that way, and there's a reason for that, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, and the timing of it, he, it's, he wrote it during his life when they were in exile. And so that also gives a different sort of shade to the, to the book as well. Um, if you've reached Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 1, look at verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of God. These verses, you know, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, the different accounts that we've had, and and most of us have read through them now, um, this should hit your ear a little odd. It's, this is weird. It's backwards from most of the battles that we read about in the Old Testament. God normally fights for his people. But in this case, it's switched. Where it says the Lord gave the king of Judah into a foreigner's hands, into a foreign king's hands. It's weird, all of a sudden, to have this recorded. All of a sudden, you could ask the question, where is God? We've just spent pages and pages and chapters and chapters and books and books talking about God's faithfulness to his people, and then all of a sudden, there you go. Well, in actuality, it wasn't all of a sudden. It was not something that, it begins this book, but that's not where the story starts. We're kind of jumping into the middle. If this were a movie, this is sort of at the end of the second act. This is where it gets bad. This is the the worst thing that could happen. Let's get a little bit of context. How did we get here? How did it come to this? Where all of a sudden you've got a foreigner coming in and taking over. Taking over the, the land, the promised land. Taking it from the people of God. Well, like I said, it didn't just start there. Let's back up a little bit. Let's back up a lot of bit. Um, let's go all the way back to Abraham. Let's start with Abraham. What are the promises given to Abraham? When he was still Abram, he couldn't have kids. And God said, perfect. That's exactly the person I want to start the family. Because then he knows, and everyone else knows, that he wasn't the one that started it. It was me. So, a barren couple, bare 
a child, the, the beginning of a nation, and the promise is given, they will fill the earth, right? As, as many as the sand on the seashores. Let's say they'll be like the stars. And so you have these big promises. One child of promise. <clears throat> so then we have Isaac. Not a lot's written about Isaac, but he does display Christ in his life. God uses him as a picture of a willing sacrifice. So he does a cool thing. That's pretty neat. Uh, We get to Jacob. Jacob, again, this promise is extended. Jacob has his his dozen. He has his 12, and this is the beginning of that nation. They take a trip down to Egypt. And these promises, they still held on to these promises. And then you have, it's a group of 70 people who travel down. This is the beginning of the nation. And we don't pick the story back up till much later, 400 years later. Where now there's some estimates up to millions of people. It really is a nation now. Enough to intimidate the Pharaoh. So we have the story of Moses. Moses is the one that God raised up to draw his people out. And not only did he draw them out, what he did with this nation is he made an agreement. Right? They went to Sinai and they got the law. It's a covenant. And they made an agreement. God said, if you do these things, you'll get these things. And if you don't do those things, you'll have these bad things happen. And then they, uh, they take a detour, right, for 40 years. They wander around finally end up in the land. Before they go in the land, God wants to reconfirm with them. Are you sure you want to do this? So they go to a place, and there's two mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. Half the tribes go on one side, half the tribes go on the other, and they yell back and forth to each other. This mountain yells blessings, This mountain yells curses. It's a vivid, vivid picture. You are either on one mountain of blessing or you're on one mountain of curses. And they're physical. These are physical promises. Which then also highlights the fact that this law that was given was not for salvation. They were already God's chosen people. Right? It's not any discussion of of salvation in there. This is, these are physical blessings that are discussed. Things like your crops growing and having children and your herds prospering and protection from foreign enemies, which obviously we'll play back into that in a little bit. <clears throat> they then go into the land and they go conquering. Right? Joshua leads the campaign. When the campaign, it's not com- completely done, but when it's mostly finished, guess what? They go back they go back to the same place just to be sure that they know what they're signing up for. Joshua says, are you sure you want to do this? Because there's blessings, but there's also curses. But guess where they stand the second time? Do they stand on the mountains? Nope. They stand in the middle. And Joshua says, you have to choose. Because even though it had only been about 25 years... At that point, there were still people there who refused to make a choice. They were straddling. They were, oh, we'll worship Yahweh here, and then we'll also worship these other gods. So rather than 
make a choice. They were in the middle. They were in the valley. And Joshua says, you have to choose. Do you really want to sign on to this covenant? Oh, yes, far be it from us to not worship Yahweh. And that's where you get that famous verse where Joshua says, fine. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You do whatever. They sign on. Sure, we'll do it. After that, we get the judges. Exactly what Joshua had talked about. You, you, you haven't chosen, and so then this is the problem that you have. Well, when you get to judges, they do make choices. They actually choose to follow after foreign gods, to not follow the covenant. So guess what? The Lord's faithful to his word. He lets calamity come in. They cry out to the Lord. And so the Lord sends a judge. See, at that time, they had no kings, they had, had a tribal system, and they had um, you know, heads of families, and those families met, and then you had the judges, and the judges would sit in the gates, and they would decide things. If you have a dispute, you go see the judges in the gates. Well, during this time, God would actually establish a judge over all of Israel, say, or at least a region, and would say, hey, I'm going to send my judge, and he's going to help you. You're crying out to me. And guess what he do? They'd call them back to the Lord. You need to worship the Lord again. And God would show himself faithful by eliminating or pushing out the Philistines or the Amorites or whoever the Lord was using to draw them back to him. And then it was good. Yay. But then they would decide to not do that again. And this whole cycle happens over and over and over and over and over again. God shows that he's faithful. (laughs) When When you obey, you get these blessings. But when you disobey, when you don't do what you have signed on to in the covenant, this is what you get. Until eventually the people say, we actually, you know what, this whole system, we're looking around and everybody else, all the other nations, they all have a king. We want that. And so they, they get a king. And they, they specifically say, we want a king like all the other nations. And the Lord says, yeah, but then he's going to be like a king that's over all the other nations. It's, why do you want that? I'm your king. Now nah, we want another one. So they got Saul. Saul was the king they would have picked. Saul looked like a king, not a great king. He was a king, like all the other nations. Started out good, ended out bad. So then God says, guess what? I will establish my king. God always intended for them to eventually become a kingdom. That's why there's laws concerning the kings. It's in the law. So then that's where we get David. So David helps to establish a united kingdom. Not, sorry, not the united kingdom, but a unified kingdom. It's not King Arthur or anything. It's not. <clears throat> Establishes a unified kingdom with all the different tribes that had not happened before, where they all were in sync, all together with one ruler. David does that. David does the setting up, and it's Solomon who really enjoys the benefits of that. Solomon, asking God for wisdom, uh, the, the nation never had been at this prosperous and never would be that prosperous. Kings from all other nations were coming asking for advice and things. The, the, the boundaries of the, or the borders expanded out. Uh, you even have exploration going out and trade. Never been before. Just this, this immense wealth and, and respect that they had. But Solomon drifted off. And his sons were not like David. 
And so the kingdom eventually splits, and you get a divided kingdom. You have a kingdom that's identified as Israel in the north, Judah in the south. In the north, they never have a righteous king, not one. Every king, if I was talking to my girls, I would say every king was a stinker. But it's much more intense than that. They were evil. Uh, Evil to the point of following after gods that demanded the sacrifice of children. Judah also had this, but they also had some good kings. There there are six kings recorded that where God says that they did what was right. There's a couple other kings that started out well and ended terribly. Um... And so in the, in the north, they never fall off. And, and actually, that's, that's where we get the stories of Elijah. Elijah's the one who came and said to the king, you've got to stop this. And he proved the point. You guys aren't worshiping the Lord? You aren't following the covenant? No rain. That was one of the curses. No rain for you. So in this divided kingdom in the north, God keeps sending prophets, please, please, follow after me. Abide by the covenant. There are consequences, please. Keep sending prophets, and the prophets are imprisoned or they're killed, or at the very least, they don't listen. And in 722, the Assyrians come in, they take out the northern kingdom. 722, and it was mostly completed. Um, the Assyrians were the, the big bad guys at the time. Uh, horribly grotesque in their practices, um, definitely not a great group to be under. The Assyrians also caused trouble down in Judah, but the Lord brought them out of it just as he promised. So the same threat that overtook Israel in the north. This is where we get the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, one of the good kings, cries out to the Lord. And guess what? They're saved. Now he did some work too. They build a wall and they make some plans and they get fresh water to come inside, and it's protected. So, I mean, they, they, they did some work, too, but they trusted the Lord. And since the angel of the Lord decimated the army that came against them, and they actually have a relief. They have the story recorded. And the story from Sennacherib, as he's going through this area and doing all these things, leads up to, he said, and I destroyed this city, and I destroyed this city, and I destroyed this city, and I got all this stuff, and I got this stuff. He said, and I went to Jerusalem, and I caged up the king, the king Hezekiah, like a bird in a cage. The end. That's where it stops. Because that's all he did. They were laid siege, and the armies were destroyed, and they went home. But you don't record that in your own histories. It's not a great ending. But that's where the story ends. There's no, we destroyed the city, we took this stuff, none of those things, because they didn't. The Lord is faithful. Then you have the good King Josiah. Josiah is uh, one of those stories that gets taught in children's church or Sunday school or in uh, refuge kids because when he becomes king, he's a child. So that's a fun one, right? I think he's nine years old. Right, and obviously he had advisors and other people there to kind of help him, but that's when he becomes king. 
<clears throat> and he must have had some really good influence he, and the Lord on his life, obviously, because he grew up to be a good king. Destroyed centers of worship, cut down the, the grove. So they would have worship in the high places. The idea was if we get high, we're closer to where the gods are. And so they would go out to these places and worship God in the high places. He destroyed those. Destroyed the shrines, the things built there. They went to the groves. They cut down these poles that they had out there. They would do um, pretty grotesque um, goddess and, and earth worship out in these places. And Josiah was used by the Lord to destroy all of these things. Radical reforms. Good king. But the people didn't follow. In the timing of this whole thing, about 40 so years later, we're in this situation in Daniel. That one, it's not technically a generation, but 40 years, that's, that's not a long time to go from radical reform to that bad that God allows the most intense curses to actually come about. And so in this story that we're going to be looking at in this account, it's, this is the account of the exiles. Uh, the Babylonians were able to come in. And it's, I mean, it's a little bit more complex than that. There's a lot of politic, uh, political things going on. And the Babylonians, they were just, a, we'd call them the Babylonians. They were just called the Chaldeans. It was just a, a, group, a few groups of tribes that all came together. But they were, they were strong. And uh, Nebopolizer, he was uh, a, a really... Uh, strong leader. He, he led this coalition. They took back uh, some of the major cities back in Shinar. And they weathered the Assyrian storm. The Assyrians came in and said, no, you're not going to rebel. And they outlasted them. And so then, in fact, they went a conquering. They went and took back the lands that had belonged to the Chaldeans. And they kept going. They kept moving. And the Assyrians at that point were in decline, but eventually, a few years later, they actually took the capital. They took Nineveh, captured it. Nebuchadnezzar was a, uh, a big name at the time. After that, they challenged Egypt. See, Egypt was kind of in control in some of these areas, especially in the southern kingdom, so he goes up against them, and he pushes them back. He actually pushes him out. It's right around that time during this campaign where he's going through Canaan. Unexpectedly, he dies. He doesn't die in battle. He who knows? Choked on a hand sandwich. I don't know. But he, just, he just dies. And so his son, who had been one of the generals, had been a really high official, sort of takes over. And when that campaign was happening, he was in charge of that campaign over there, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. So they took over some of that region there, but still they hadn't pushed all the Egyptians out and his father had died. So he had to go back, back to Babylon to secure his rightful place. Right? Whenever there's a you know, change in leadership like that, it's pretty intense, and so you need to go back and solidify that. And then he would come back. Well, that first campaign, he brought back some of those captives. His people did. So this is the first... So, uh, this is the first uh, exile that you'd see here. So, it's, it's not as though we have this really powerful, established king who's been there for decades. He's, he's young, he's up and coming, he's 
standing, standing in his father's shadow, and he steps up, and he actually expands the kingdom. He does even better. He pushes back the Egyptians. Uh, the, the Egyptian pharaoh at the time is probably my favorite pharaoh name, Necho. You know, it was Necho wafers. That's how I remember it. Um, pushing back the Egyptians. Um, Nebuchadnezzar makes a name for himself at that time. The Babylonians practiced something the Assyrians did, which, it, which was forced deportation from the people's perspective, exile. There's a few reasons for that. You conquer an area, you conquer land, you have to leave a garrison or, or something to kind of keep control. Well, if you remove the people, start with the, the, the aristocracy, uh, a lot of people lose the will to fight. They don't have their leadership. They don't have the means to rebel. You start moving other people in from other regions, and there are a lot of people who then move into the land who don't really care. They're just there to live and to, you know, we'll, we'll plant crops, but they have no heart tied to the place. They, they might have a house, but it's not really their home. They're there for opportunity, or maybe they've been forcibly moved from some other place. And so by doing this, you really can kind of keep some control because it keeps a lot of people off, off balance. So then imagine all these people get moved and Daniel, who we'll become very familiar with, he's part of that upper class in Jerusalem. So rather than just being dispersed out somewhere, he's brought to Babylon. And one of the reasons is if your ruling class, your, your upper class is, is brought in and they buy into the empire... Oh, if anyone was ever thinking about reestablishing the kingdom, your own, your own leadership would say, nah, we got it pretty good. We're doing okay. So as far as empire building, it's, it's a terrible way to do it, but it's really effective. This is what they're practicing. This is what they're doing. But why? You know, in, in, in 597, 586, and 582, God allows this foreign power to come in and forcibly remove. And so you can ask again, yeah, okay, I understand those things, but, but maybe they didn't know, maybe they didn't really understand. Why would you do that, God? Let's, let's look at Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 record all the blessings and curses. We're mostly at, uh, you know, interested in the curses this morning. Deuteronomy 28, look at verse... Uh, verse 25, sort of look here. This is in the middle of the curses. Okay, I just want to warn you, this is not going to be very happy. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So remember, the context here, God is saying, this, if you don't obey, if you disobey, if you break the covenant, this is what's going to happen. The blessings are, are actually kind of just the opposite of whatever the curse is. The blessing is the opposite. Look at 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs that itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of the mind, and you shall grope at noonday in the blind, as the blind grope in darkness. 
You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. There shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, and another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, and you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies. There shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on your knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you, whom you set over you uh, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. And it goes on. <clears throat> Verse 41. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. This was promised. God said, if you don't follow the covenant, these things will happen. It's a fair warning. Now, the opposite of that is if you do follow along the covenant, there will be no end to the blessings that you'll receive, right? The, 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 the crops will yield. They'll be protected from pests. Your sons and daughters will live in peace. You know, they'll, you'll be able to give an inheritance to your children. It goes on and on. These are the blessings, but here's the curses. And this is something that, that we need to remember. God's faithfulness cuts both ways. We want him to be faithful to give to us, but guess what? He's also faithful to deliver what he has promised as far as calamity or curses. People want a God that is only faithful in one direction, God is faithful to his word. If he promises blessing, he will give blessing, but if he promised that there would be consequences, there will be consequences. What we have here is a people that failed to, one, trust that God was faithful to give the blessings, otherwise, why would you give that up? But two, they failed to trust in God's faithfulness that he actually would deliver on what he promised in curses. And calamity. In general, they just did not believe that Yahweh would do what he said, either way. They were completely given over to a foreign concept, a foreign idea, foreign philosophy, foreign gods. The Lord's faithful in blessing, but he's also faithful in the curses. Now, the curses that are given in Deuteronomy happen to be Daniel's reality. This is what he lives in. He lives in that reality that we just talked about. His parents were the ones that were standing there watching their children get dragged away to another land, never to be seen again. 
He's living these out. That's the background of Daniel. What's interesting is that this actually may have been the catalyst of faith for a lot of these that were in exile. Wow, God really did what he said he was going to do. So guess what also must be true? If we follow him, be faithful that way as well. Now we don't know, we don't have that kind of exposition given, but it would make sense. If the Lord is faithful one way, he'll be faithful the other. Because it happened pretty close to what is explicitly taught there in the curses. That's what was delivered. So the Lord judged as he promised. So he must be able to promise or to uh, deliver what he has promised in blessing. This goes back to a more full understanding of the law. The law given is an opportunity for those who are the Lord's to live righteously. But it is also a great opportunity for those who are sinful, who are rebellious, to sin and be rebellious all the more. Because now they have directions on how to do it instead of just seeing if they can be rebellious in some way. They can actually do it according to the law itself. So here's the real dilemma that Daniel is faced with, he and his friends. It's the subtext. And we're going to get into it a lot more next week as we go through chapter 1. Daniel and his friends have to decide something for themselves. Is Yahweh still God outside of Israel? Is Yahweh still powerful? Is Yahweh still who he says he is, still powerful to save even if we aren't at home, even if we can't go to the temple, even if there are no priests, even if no one else is worshiping Yahweh, is Yahweh still who he says he is? Is he still powerful? And I bet you could guess, even if you haven't read Daniel before, the fact that he wrote the book and is called a prophet, you can probably decide which way he went on that. Right? That's part of the story. Is God still powerful. Now that for us, we go like, of course he is. Yes. For them, there was a very um, prevalent understanding of how the gods worked at the time. We actually see this a lot in the, in the Exodus, right? That's kind of this testing of God. Is God still God out here? God still shows himself faithful every time, right? Um, we're not going to go through it. We don't have the passage up here, but in Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, we get a really unique story. The people weren't really following after Yahweh, and they decided, we're going to take our trinket of power, the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to decide to go out against the Philistines. Didn't inquire the Lord, didn't ask if that's what they should do. They just said, well, we got the Ark, so we have our magic box, let's do it. Took it out there, and guess what? They lost. And guess who took their magic box, in air quotes? The Philistines took it. So they go, oh no. I'm sure a lot of them were saying, I thought Yahweh was really powerful and stuff. <clears throat> I'm sure the Philistines also thought, I thought Yahweh was really powerful and stuff. Because we have his, his magic box. We have it. Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant actually has on it, it has God's throne. It has the mercy seat. This was supposed to be God's throne. So they took it and so said, like, hey, we got Yahweh. We got to the place where he sits. So guess what they did? They put it in the temple of their God as an offering to say, there you go, Dagon. 
you won. Here's the subservient God, Yahweh. He'll now sit in your temple and worship you. There you go. And that was their understanding. We won. Yahweh's not as good as Dagon. Well, in the story, every day, Dagon either falls over, his head falls off, something happens. So they say, something weird is going on. Then the plague goes through, and they called tumors. We don't really know what those were. Some historians think that they were hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids so bad that it led to political action. I mean, that is something. <laughs> These hemorrhoids are so bad, we've got to do something nationally. We've got to fix this thing. Um, and and the mice... I don't know what the mice thing was about. But they make these gold offerings, right? And they put it in a cart. They basically make it really impossible for this cart to go. You give it, put a cow there that just had calves. And like, this cow will never leave its calves. So if Yahweh wants to move this, he can move it. Guess what he does? It moves. They say, good riddance. Because guess what? God was still powerful. Yahweh was still Yahweh. They want to make fun of him. He's going to make fun of them. Yahweh shows, shows up. Yahweh is still powerful, even in the cities of the Philistines. So now here's the big question. Yeah, but now we're really far away. We're really far away in Babylon. Is Yahweh still Yahweh? Is he still powerful? That's the real question. Is he really, really going to take care of us? And that's the choice they have to make. So through Daniel's life, Yahweh shows that generation that he actually is not only powerful, He's Lord of Lords, He's King of Kings, and God of Gods. He'll show it time and time again. That's why I love this book. As we go through the study, we, we have another four weeks of Daniel after this, and it's definitely not enough time to this. We were, we were trying to move, in, in, in the Bible study I was doing, we are trying to move fast through Daniel. How long did it take us, Joel? Eight, nine months to move fast through Daniel because there's just so much there. Um, we don't have enough time. So what we're going to do is we're going to do an overview today so that hopefully you get a nice view of how the whole book works. All right, we're not going to spend a ton of time. We're going to work our way through because there's some really interesting things. Chapter one. Chapter one is this really cool introduction to Daniel and he has three friends. We're going to get more into that next week. We're introduced to Daniel, and he's put into a situation where he has to make these choices. And we learn who he is, and we learn about his character. Uh, chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. That's how it's delivered. Most of the, in fact, pretty much the rest of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. With the exception of a few passages and Daniel, because starting in the next chapter, chapters 2 through 7, all in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the day. It was the language that, it was like a trade language. Everybody would speak that. So the question is, why were chapters 2 through 7 written in Aramaic? Well, the thought is, Daniel wrote these not to deliver to Israel, but these were written so that everybody would read them. Spoiler alert, Daniel becomes a high official in Babylon. He wrote these. These are most likely entered into the historical record. For the Babylonians, for the Chaldeans, for, the, for this uh, empire. And so they're written in Aramaic, chapters 2 through 7. Which is interesting because with, there are a few, a couple times where this happens as well, but God actually calls his prophet to not only be a prophet to Israel, but to be a prophet to the nations. 
to the empire. It's really interesting. So now it's chapters 2 through 7. In chapter 2, what we have included here is, is the first dream that the king has. And this is where Daniel really has to put his trust in, in Yahweh. Is Yahweh going to show up? King has this dream. Daniel says Yahweh can interpret that. We don't know if he was able to ever do this before, but he said, yeah, Yahweh can do that. My God does that. And then he went home to his friends and he said, all right, we need to pray that God does this because I have to go to the king. So hopefully Yahweh does this. Um, and it's a dream. And it's a famous dream. It's a dream that if, how many of you ever studied eschatology, end times, and kind of stuff? You can put your hand up. It's a safe place. Nobody's going to throw anything at you. Um, this vision is, is almost always in the charts. It's the uh, statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees. And each section is a different kingdom, right? So he sees this. He gives the interpretation. And no one else could. So Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, something special about the God that you serve. Which is uh, an understatement. But uh, I'm sure Yahweh was happy that he at least said it. Chapter 3, we get to uh, not just Daniel's faithfulness is recorded, but also his three friends. So it's the story of the furnace. Um, it's the one that a lot of kids here in Sunday school or refuge kids, if you went to VBS, if you, you know, this is a really uh, famous children's story. Even though it's really grotesque, if you think about it, we're throwing people in fire. Why would we tell that to our kids? Don't do that. But it's recorded. The faithfulness of these men are recorded. And actually, I want to say something about that, too. Um, There could be a thought as you read through Daniel that Daniel's the only one doing this. So the fact that his three friends get to actually have a story about their faithfulness, it's, it's kind of reminiscent of what Elijah had to learn. So after Elijah went up against the prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah, um, and they're all slaughtered because Yahweh showed up and did what he does, um, they were recognized as, as false prophets. After that, Jezebel just says, well, we're going to kill Elijah, and then he runs. He runs away, runs far away, runs to Mount Sinai. And as Elijah is sitting there hiding from the queen, God shows up. And uh, they have a conversation, and Elijah says, God, I'm the only one. I am the only faithful one. No one else is there. No one else in Israel cares. No one else is worshiping Yahweh. And the Lord informs him. He's like, there's actually 7,000 other people, so chill out. He doesn't say chill out, but he just says, hey, you're not the only one. Go back. Right? There's still a remnant. So this idea, this concept that there's not just Daniel, there's others kind of rings there too. Pretty cool. Chapter 4, the king's second dream. He sees a giant tree. Sounds like a pleasant dream. Um, but he has this dream, and it's a dream about himself. The dream is cut down. And it's funny because Nebuchadnezzar seems to not hear the whole explanation. So I'm sure all he heard was, I'm a great tree. Like a really big tree. That's awesome. 
And he thinks back, and he thinks back to the statue, and he's like, man, I'm like the head of this really awesome statue. He doesn't remember the last part where it's destroyed or anything, but she says, wow, because what we get in the next chapter, uh, or in chapter 3, is that giant idol that they build of himself. It's like he doesn't hear it. So when he hears this, he's like he doesn't believe that, oh, you know, I'm this great thing, but I'm going to get cut down. It's like he doesn't get it. Because it's also recorded that he was, it's his humiliation. It's where he is made to be a beast for seven years. He doesn't act like a human. He acts like a beast. He sleeps outside and his nails and hair grow crazy. And That must have been a weird time to be there, to have the king just living in the backyard. But he's then restored. And that's where he then actually gives a pretty amazing um, praise to Yahweh. And there's some scholars that think at that point he, he wholeheartedly followed after Yahweh after that. And he just kind of stepped back. He's like, I don't want to be king anymore, which is crazy for if you read all the other stuff about Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, ah, I don't think I want to be king anymore. I just want to worship Yahweh and do stuff that's good. And we don't have all that subtext, but he gave up the throne. And there's a few different kings that rule after him including his son, which is recorded in the next chapter. This is where we get the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall basically marks the end of Babylon as an empire. Persia comes in. And so for many of those Jews who had been displaced, who then had prayed against Babylon for years, that they would be judged, they were finally judged by Persia. Chapter 6, we get Daniel in the lion's den, another famous story. Chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. He has a dream of beasts. There's lots of beasts in Daniel. Um, He has a dream of these beasts. A lot of people connect the beasts to the statue, and I think they're actually a separate thing. I think the statue is history, and all the beasts are, all those nations are together all at once. And this one beastly beast, great beast, takes over these other nations. Um, and it's an allusion to the Antichrist's rule. Chapter 8, it transitions. We go back to Hebrew. All of a sudden we're in Hebrew again. This is where chapters 8 through the end is where it really sounds like one of the other prophets, like Jeremiah. Or is it, he, he's interacting with Yahweh. He's getting visions. It goes back to Hebrew. This is more important for Israel. And actually, all the prophecies here are more about Israel. So he has a, uh, a dream about a ram and a goat. And the ram is one nation again. I always do these pictures of nations and kingdoms that are animals. It's kind of fun. But the ram is, uh, is Persia, and the goat is the Greek Empire. And what's interesting is history tells us that when Alexander the Great was, you know, rolling through, um, rolling through different nations, basically saying, hey, do you want to join the Greek Empire or do you want us to destroy you? You get to choose. They say, oh, you're written about in our, uh, in our prophecies. We, and so they brought out the, the scroll and they, they showed him. Look, you're this goat, and you're moving through, and this is a prophecy that, that our God gave about you. They probably, didn't, they probably left out the end part. 
But, uh, you know, how they'd be taken over by another king. He says, oh, I like you guys. I like you Jews. You guys are fine. And he moves on. Yay. Pretty cool story. That's this chapter. Chapter uh, 9, which we are going to spend some time on weeks from now, happens to be about weeks. Um, Daniel has a, uh, he prays to the Lord, and the Lord delivers to him a message. Seventy-sevens that are important. Seven is translated weeks in a lot of translations, because the word for week in Hebrew is just, it's interchangeable, it's just a seven. And so these are prophetic weeks that he has given to his people. I'm not going to talk too much about that since we're going to spend a sermon on that. Daniel then has in chapter 10 a vision of a man. But it's not really a man. It's a vision of a man. Um, He has a vision of the Lord. He says it looks like a man. Pretty intense visitation that he has there in chapter 10. Chapter 11. Uh, Oh, one of the important things in chapter 10 and I bring it up because we're not going to have time to go through 10 when we actually get to that area, that, that, that place in the book. He calls him beloved of God. Daniel, beloved of God. This is what the, the, this crazy vision of, of God says to him. You are beloved of God. There's one other person that's really described that way. I mean, Jesus is called the beloved of the Father, but there's one other person that's called that. That's John. John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he's identified. And it's interesting that the two people that are identified very uniquely as those whom God loves, God gives a really intense view of the end of the world. That's pretty weird. But what it it kind of implies is God, to those whom he loves, he trusts and he gives this information it's kind of a cool thing. We don't normally think of eschatology in that way. Wow, God gave me this really disturbing vision of the future. God must love me. But that's exactly what God says. I love you and I trust you and I'm giving this to you because I want you to know and understand what I'm going to be doing. It's pretty awesome. Chapter 11, we get uh, the uh, accounts of the kings of the north and the king of the south, which, uh, without getting into it, I think that these are actually the wars of the Antichrist. This is his rise to power. Whomever he is, whenever it takes place. Makes the most sense that from the context of the rest of the book, the king of the south is Egypt. Contextually, and the kings of the north are some Syrian, Lebanon coalition, something going on there, because that's how they're identified at the time. Kings of the north, kings of the south, from the perspective of Israel. Chapter 12 is the end, quite literally. It's the last chapter, and it's a vision that Daniel gets about the end, where God shares with them some unique things. And also, hey, bind all this stuff up and don't tell everybody about this. Right, it's going to be bound up until the end. That's so a lot of stuff, right? So we're going to be going through all those things. One of the other big, big things to learn from Daniel, a couple other passages, and then we'll, we'll end here. How do you live in exile? How do you live far away from the promised land where the kingdom will. How do you live like that? The idea of being in exile is it's a bigger concept, it's a bigger idea. And in fact, we ourselves can identify ourselves as kind of living in exile. We're waiting. We're waiting for the kingdom. 
waiting for the kingdom to be established, for it to come. And so we live like we're in the kingdom. We bring that culture with us wherever we are, wherever we go. Let's look at Philippians real quick. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, this is Paul writing this, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish. Note this, look at this. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that it did not run in vain or labor in vain. We're supposed to live as children of God, a light in the darkness. It's acknowledging. We live in a, I mean, Paul was acknowledging it then. They live in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. Do we live in a twisted and crooked generation just in the world? I think that every generation could say that. There are elements that were going on, things that were happening where they say, yeah, this is pretty messed up even at some of the best times. It says that we're to shine as lights in the world. We're to bring light to the darkness. Some people ask, and, and a lot of times it's, it's younger believers, they'll say, why didn't God just take us to heaven when we got saved? Why, why didn't he just take us home? And I say, because he needs light here. We need light in this world, and that's why we're here. And look forward to the day when Christ arrives and they can be happy that they didn't work towards something that didn't have any value. Let's look quickly at 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. I know we're not going to be going to a refuge family camp. This passage talks about how we constantly live in tents. So it kind of works out. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about our bodies. These bodies are temporary. They're not meant to last. There are a lot of people, a lot of corporations, a lot of rich people that are trying to find a way to make this tent last forever. And it won't work. It won't work. You can't. And why would you? Why would you want to live in this tent forever? I don't want to live in a tent forever. Camping is fun, but camping is only fun because it ends at a certain point. Right? I can do this for a week. It says we're longing for our permanent dwelling. Guess what? We feel like we live in exile. We're not supposed to come here and plant deep roots and just feel like I'm going to be in the world forever. That's not our perspective. That's not what we're supposed to do. We live in tents, and we need to remember that. When our bodies start to get old and wear out, we say, man, this tent, looking forward to moving in some other place. Right? It's because it says we have a house, an eternal house, that will last forever. And that's not talking about God's going to prepare a place for me in like an apartment complex, like a really nice one. I mean, it's in heaven. But, you know, that's not what we're talking about. This building from heaven, if we're using the same thing, that's, we get a resurrected body that we will never be separated from that's made to last forever, that we will always live in. And it's going to be awesome, 
Because if, it, if it's compared to this one and it's, that's a house and this is a tent, it's going to be pretty good. Verse 4, for while we we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. We don't want to just die and end it. Hope I just disappear like a vapor. We're looking forward to moving into this other house. That's the whole point. He's prepared it for us. Let's look at this next passage, 1 Corinthians 6. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's part of a greater teaching on sexual morality. So he says, flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the, sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, we just talked about how the body is temporary, but at the same time, our body is a temple. There was a time when the temple was a tent, if you remember. When they wandered around in the desert, in the wilderness, their temple was a tent. And they looked forward. Well, they didn't know what was going to happen after that, but we get to David and he feels sad that God lives in a tent and he built a palace for himself as king. Why should you live in a tent when I live in the palace? Right? So, but this idea that we are the temple. We carry the Spirit of God. That's one of the points. That's one of the major reasons why we are here. We're here in exile. We are not meant to be here forever, which is why we should constantly, every day, be excited for, longing for, and looking for the return of Jesus. Not just so that Jesus can come here and everything will be happy, but because it's the fulfillment of all these promises. The temporary will go away and the permanent will arrive. But we are, until that happens, when Jesus is on earth, we are the temple of the Spirit. So guess what? That dark place over there, man, someone should go over there. Someone should do something. God's probably going to send you over there. Do you ever ask, why in the world am I in this office? There's no other Christians here. There's no other believers here. I feel so discouraged. And God would say, that's why you're there. That's why I put you there. So you could be a light. So you as the temple can bring the presence of the Spirit to a place. See, sometimes we, we have the wrong perspective. We think exile is a punishment for us. Exile, it's kind of our way of life until the permanent comes. We are traveling, we are wandering, we're sojourning, but we do so with a purpose. As we go through the book of Daniel, we'll see that God has a purpose for Daniel in exile and the people as well. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you do not just leave us as orphans but you are with us. Thank you, Lord, for your provision for us, for caring for us. Lord, thank you for the example of Daniel. And as we look more into Daniel in the coming weeks, as we learn more about him, his character, the situations you put him in, Lord, and the way that he responds, Lord, I pray that we would know and understand more about you, how you love us, care for us, Lord, and how you give us good gifts and allow us to endure, Lord, living in a dark place, in a crooked generation, Lord, that we might bring light 
that we might bring your spirit where we go. Lord, I pray that you would deploy us where you would have us. I pray, Lord, that we would have that correct perspective, that we would remember that it is not for no reason that we are where we are, but it is for your purpose, for your glory, and for your kingdom. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.